And I think it's really the quality of the rapport between practitioner and patient and the intention of the practitioner in the moment of needling, which I think is what really potentiates acupuncture most of all. I think acupuncture is a subtle form of medicine. I think it's not a question of just you know, applying it mechanistically. I think you have to potentiate it. And I think once a patient feels really met by the practitioner and feels they trust the practitioner as they would hopefully trust their doctor as well, but they really trust the practitioner and feel a real connection with the practitioner, I think that that can really potentiate the treatment and make the treatment much more effective. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Raven Hill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Although not by design, this conversation with renowned acupuncturist Peter Mole continues in a similar vein of five-element acupuncture that was introduced in my last podcast with Dr. Peter Ekman. Peter Mole began his acupuncture training under the legendary J.R. Worsley at Leamington Spa in England in the late 70s and has been in clinical practice ever since. In the early 90s, Peter co-founded one of the world's most influential colleges of acupuncture, the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine in Reading, England. Nearly 30 years later, he is still the dean of the college while also maintaining an impactful clinical practice. He is also author of Acupuncture for Body, Mind, and Spirit and co-author of the major textbook, Five Element Constitutional Acupuncture. Peter emphasizes human connection, potentially above all else, and we spend a great deal of time exploring what that looks and feels like to him and the role it plays in his clinic. We also talk about the value of intention in any treatment and how that can often be more influential than point selection or location. Peter is drawn to psychosomatic approaches to health and we peel back the lid on the inner world of humans that manifests in outer illness. As practitioners, we might find we have to initially treat symptoms to get the results that gain patients' trust. And once trust is established, much deeper healing can be fostered through examining the inner milieu. This is a timely episode about human connection, non-judgmental empathy, and above all else, love. Peter is an inspirational mentor and a kind-hearted individual who, through his craft of acupuncture, is awakening beauty in the world. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Peter Mole. Peter, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Pleasure to be here. It's delightful to have you here. Thank you for doing this today. And we were just talking before I hit record, trying to figure out how I I know of you. And as I mentioned, I know of you in, in part because of the book that you co-wrote with John and Angie Hicks, Five Element Constitutional Acupuncture, an incredible book. It's been one of our core teaching books for Five Elements at Pacific Rim College. And as I said, you're a bit of a legend in the field. And you have certainly influenced and inspired countless people in, in the field of acupuncture and five elements. So it really is an honor to have you on the show today. Outside of that, though, I don't know much about you. So I'm excited to get to know you, get to know your work, your journey, and we'll see where this conversation takes us. So you are, according to your bio, you're still dean of the College of Integrative Chinese Medicine. And I am. Yes, that's true. That's yeah. true. Can you tell me a bit about 
the institution that you have there? Well, I back in I started studying acupuncture back in the seventies, uh, and in those days we didn't really know what we had no idea what TCM was at that time. You know, China was pretty much impossible to visit, and certainly no books were translated. So for until about the mid eighties, I was practicing purely five element acupuncture. And then when we started to discover what TCM was really, partly through Ted Kapchuk and uh, Giovanni Machocha and people like that. Um, so in the 80s, um, John and Angie and myself and others who have been purely five element practitioners all studied TCM as well. And certainly in the United Kingdom, I don't, I don't know what's true in, in Canada or in, in, in America, but it, 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 people divide into camps to a certain extent. People have that tendency, don't they? They always think that whatever they do is, is the right way. And if you're not doing it that right way, you're some kind of heretic. Yeah. And we just thought that we, we, it seemed to us perfectly logical to integrate those two styles together. Uh, so um, we decided in the early 90s, 92, 93, we set up a college to integrate the five element constitutional style with TCM, because we think that both styles have strengths and weaknesses. And we think that the the, the, weak, the strengths of one complement well the weaknesses of the other, really, I think would be fair enough to say. So that's really the raison d'etre of the college. Mm-hmm. And how has that journey been? I read that you're the largest Chinese medicine college in Europe. Is that correct? I, I believe so. So I think we are. No, even in our very first year, we took on more students than any, any other college, certainly in the United Kingdom. Wow. Because I think that people were kind of crying out for the integration of those two styles, as opposed to the people who wanted to stay believing their style was the only, was the only true way and the other style was somehow five element practitioners were inclined to think that TCM acupuncture was just kind of purely symptomatic. And TCM practitioners were inclined to think that five element pra- acupuncture wasn't the real thing, that TCM was the real thing. Uh, and so I think there was a, a large demand in the United Kingdom, really, for people to put those two styles together. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you think it was that you ended up having an initial enrollment that was larger than any of the pre-existing schools at that time? Well, I think John Ange and I were all well known as teachers. We've all been teaching for some years at the, at the college in Leamington Spa. So we were very well known as, as, as teachers, really. Um, and also, as I said, I think that we were the first college really to say, look, you can integrate these two styles. You don't have to do one or the other. You can do both styles together. And I think that uh, I think that hit a resonance with many people. So from the word go, we became very popular, really, and, and grew very quickly. That's incredible. So Leamington Spa is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the Worsley lineage. You must you studied under Worsley, is that correct? That's right. It's, I, he was my original teacher there. Yes, yeah. very much. Okay. Yeah. So I just interviewed Peter Ackman. Oh, I, yeah. think, I think that's the most recent interview. So we talked quite a bit about the Worsley lineage and his experience and uh, some of the books that he's written and... Um, so it's quite a fascinating and lineage, and I think anyone who's in the field of Chinese medicine and acupuncture has heard legends of Worsley and, and that lineage, so it's very interesting, and I really appreciate that you were able to see the weaknesses in it and integrate it with other branches of Chinese medicine, so to speak, uh, and very commendable that you guys were able to launch with such fanfare. Our initial enrolling class in 2007 was three students. Oh, right. <laughs> so we were by far the I largest. Think, I think Peter did a fantastic job of researching where Worsley learned what he was then teaching. He interviewed, he went all over the world pretty much interviewing he, people and yeah. finding out, how did Worsley d- d- discover that? I think he did a, um, an amazing job, really. You know. Yeah, we. it's a great book in the footsteps of the Yellow Emperor, and we talked quite a bit about that book and the journey that he went on to do all that research and writing for it. Yeah, it's I think it's quite interesting, particularly that um, 
he interviewed Radha Thamburaj, who's a practitioner in the Midlands of England, who studied in Shanghai in the late 60s, 66 to 69, because she was a member of the, at the time, Salon, now Sri Lanka, the Salonese Young Communist Party, so she was allowed to go there. And so she was learning uh, aspects of Chinese medicine, which was still, which Worsley was teaching, but you just don't see them in contemporary TCM anymore now at all. You know, was, I think it's quite interesting that as late as the late 1960s, they were still teaching in Shanghai certain aspects that by the 70s, you had just been uh, censored out of contemporary TCM. Right. Yeah. And how's the journey with your school been since you first opened? How, you opened with great success. Has it continued to grow or have you reached a point where you've you had to put a ceiling on it and say this is this is the cap on our enrollment no we've had to cap the enrollment we we know we've we've just stuck to the one course really apart from some postgraduate courses we haven't um you know, we haven't uh, spread out from just teaching the integration of the five elements in tcm but we've been very busy over all the years really and we continue to be very busy it's striking i do a lot of the interviewing uh, for the college for applicants it's amazing how many people, when you, when you ask them, when you ask them, you know, how long have you been thinking of studying acupuncture for? It's amazing how many people say, well, during the lockdown, because I'm not sure what you did in Canada, but in England, we had quite lengthy periods where people were, were locked down. Yeah. Um, you now I was thinking about my working life and thought, I don't want to go on doing whatever I'm doing at the moment. I think it's time for me to change. And it's been striking how many people um, we have a huge surge in recruitment recently from people who just seem to have reflected upon their lives and decided that they want to be acupuncturists as opposed to being whatever it is they are at the moment. Isn't that interesting? We've had the really the same experience here, and I'm no longer intimately involved with the college, but I know enough about it to know that our enrollment over the last year, year and a half, has surged to new levels that we haven't been at before. And in particular, our Chinese medicine programs have reached an all-time high where we now have a wait list a year out for our programs. Right. And, and it's excellent. just something that, yeah, for whatever reason, people seem to be turning to this. And I always said back in, in the day when I used to lead our new student orientations, I used to tell people in the audience that many of you will not even finish the program that you're enrolled in. But I, I can guarantee that the skills and the perspective that you learn while you're here will follow you for the rest of your life. It will be with you in everything that you do. And so it's something that I myself am no longer a practitioner of acupuncture or Chinese medicine, and yet it is, it's in my fiber. So it, it plays out in every part of my life and every part of my day. And I think that is really something incredible about, incredible about natural medicines in general is it really is a lifestyle and once someone starts to go down the path to learn to be a practitioner whether they become a practitioner or not it is a life-changing experience i think all the students say that i don't think any student emerges out of a out of a course of chinese medicine or natural medicines in general without without going through some pretty profound changes in themselves i think, I think that's true mm -hmm. what was your experience like peter you as you said, you started decades ago, you studied under a, a legend, and you've experienced so much, I'm sure, over the years, and you had the wherewithal to integrate various schools of thought. So I'd love to hear more about that. 
It was very different back in the 70s. You know, it really was very, very different indeed. You know, I was taught almost exclusively by Worsley. Occasionally, he'd have a day off and get one of his friends to come and teach us. But essentially, he was just teaching us, um, you know, single-handedly, really. Uh, the, the notion now that, for example, uh, the, the, co the college of which I'm the dean, the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine, you know, we're giving university degrees. And certainly back in the 70s, we would never have imagined that we'd reached that level of acceptance that we'd be giving university degrees in acupuncture. It was still very, very fringe in those days. And um, it was pretty ad hoc, really. Um, certainly, you know, worse than you, very little Western medicine. We learned, we learned no Western medicine at all in, our, in, in the, our initial course. You know, it, was, it, it was very pioneering days. And were you guys in part responsible for bringing this into the modern era where you are now able to give university degrees? Was your institute one yes, of the very pioneers? Much so, very much so. Certainly, um, yes. You know, in the 80s and 90s, in the 90s, really, the movement to try and um, make things essentially not, not more standardized, but certainly to make it more a more complete training and bring it up to a much higher level uh, was certainly the case in the United Kingdom. And so we became a degree in 2005, I think it was. Um, and certainly the level of acceptance in acupuncture in the, in, in the United Kingdom compared to how it was back in the late 20th century is, is enormous. I think on the, especially on the West Coast, like, like you are, I think you've had a much longer tradition because of your Japanese and Chinese um, populations. Uh, so I think it's been there much longer than it has in the, in the United Kingdom. But back, back in the 70s, uh, acupuncture was just unheard of really in, in, in the United Kingdom at that time. I think that was pretty much the case here as well. At least that's what I've heard from a lot of the people I've interviewed. In your journey, how did you become interested in something that was so unheard of and so hard to find? Well, on one level, it was chance. You know, like, like a lot of things, it's, it's chance, isn't it, really? Um, after I finished university, I, 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 went, I went to live in India for a period of time. It was back in the 70s. It was a long time ago, you know. And um, if you live in India for long enough, especially if you haven't got much money, in the end, you get ill, really. <laughs> so I got ill and I tried Tibetan medicine and I tried Ayurvedic medicine and I tried um, homeopathy. Uh, in the end, actually, I tell the truth, I have parasites. So Western medicine got me better. But the notion that there were other forms of medicine apart from Western medicine never crossed my mind at that time. I'm not sure it crossed many people's mind back in those days, really. Um, so I just got interested in different kinds of medicine and was reading them a little bit. It never really crossed my mind that I would become a practitioner of one of them. I was just interested. In the end, uh, you know, I came back to England and thought I'd better find some meaningful work. And just by chance, I bumped into somebody who wants to take my pulses, who said they'd found this rather charismatic um, acupuncture teacher and um, it was possible to become an acupuncturist and I thought well that sounds that sounds that sounds good that might that might work for me <laughs> so on one level it was chance I bumped into somebody but on another level I think that it was kind of fertile ground in the sense that I was certainly looking for some meaningful work I, I didn't know what I wanted to do but I knew what I wanted to do involved helping people I knew I'd, I'd worked out that much anyway and then when someone came along and said um, you know acupuncture is a possibility you could become an acupuncturist that sounded pretty cool to me uh, and I went to see Worsley, who was a very charismatic speaker. He had his, he had his uh, I'm not altogether uncritical of certain aspects, but he was a very charismatic teacher and certainly had a huge influence upon my life and, and my style of acupuncture, for, for sure. So that was the 
place where you started first. You went to Leamington Spa yes. to study under Worsley. What was That's it like? Right. What was it like then? I know you said he was your only teacher, basically. Uh, was there a large? Well, we group started of off. You, he was just renting a hotel room. You know, just teaching from a hotel room, really, uh, and doing it all himself. And then, uh, quite quickly, the more and more students came, and so he got more and more money together and got proper premises together and a clinic together. Um, but it was all pretty wild west stuff back in the back in the seventies, really. And certainly when I, you know, I told people I was studying acupuncture, people hadn't heard what acupuncture was. Whereas of course. these days, everybody knows an acupuncturist. So I certainly know somebody who's had acupuncture anyway. You know, back in those days, it was a whole different story. So you started out with the hotel room days or were you, did you come on board after he had space? Uh, I started off in the hotel room days. So you were one of the original students? No, not the original. These were very original students all came from America, really. Okay. Um, uh, Bob Duggan and Diane Conley and, and others. Bob Duggan and Diane Connolly then set up the college in Maryland, uh, the yep. TAI. Um, so, and for, for two or three years, it was just Americans who was teaching. There were a couple of English people, like John Hicks, for example, uh, did manage to sneak their way onto the courses. I was really the, in the second course that he was teaching purely for British people, really. So I was certainly very early, but not, not the very, very beginning. And how many years did you study with him? Uh, well, certainly three years originally. And then in those days, he was doing... Um, you know, kind of postgraduate. Well, it wasn't graduate technically, I suppose. So I became a, a what's called a bachelor of acupuncture and a master of acupuncture up until about uh, 1984. But by that time, I was also teaching in the college and becoming a clinical supervisor in the 80s as well. So I, although I wasn't necessarily studying with him, I was seeing a lot of patients with him. Uh, so I spent a lot, a lot of time around him and saw a lot of patients with him mm -hmm. uh, in terms of learning his diagnostic techniques, really. So when you say you were teaching in the college, what college? I was the College of Traditional Acupuncture in Leamington Spa. Oh, so his, you were teaching at his college? Okay. Teaching his college. At, yeah. at that point in time, he had more than himself teaching. Yes, by that time, he was taking on other 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 teachers, such as myself and John Hicks and Angie Hicks and uh, other people as well. Yes, it was mm -hmm. growing very very fast by that time. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you found some interest in traditional Chinese medicine as well and realized that there were some deficiencies on both sides that could be bridged by combining the two. How did that come about? Well, I went to China in 1982, um, but I must say I was rather disappointed by what I saw there, really. Uh, we, were just, we were just traipsing from hospital to hospital, and the, certainly the standard, for example, of point location was very poor, very, yeah. very poor. And it was the, a lot of the acupuncture I saw was rather formulaic, really. Um, and I didn't come, I, I thought I'd come out of that trip determined to study TCM. But to tell the truth, I didn't for another two or three years. But I think that um, some of the teachers who were teaching TCM uh, in England at that time, uh, Peter Dedman, uh, Giovanni Machocha, uh, and people like that, I think they made it much more accessible for us. Um, and I realized that although what I'd seen, I hadn't seen, been very impressed by, that the theory was right. And certainly I thought it could plug what I saw as the, as the major deficiencies in the five element style. Mm -hmm. I think the major deficiencies in the five element style really are certainly the treatment of musculoskeletal conditions. Um, and also I think the, the, the treatment of a lot of acute conditions as well. It just isn't so strong at those kind of conditions, I think really. And so you found by combining the TCM with that, you were able to fill in those gaps and then... Yes, I certainly got much better at treating musculoskeletal conditions. And also, uh, you know, when people came in with infections, just common colds or coughs, 
um, you know, strengthening the person's constitution was often not the appropriate treatment, I think. Sometimes you needed to, you know, clear phlegm from someone's chest or right. uh, whatever it may be, release the exterior. So I think that uh, the treatment of acute conditions and musculoskeletal conditions, I got a lot better from once I learned my TCM, yes. And on the other side, you found that five elements really augmented what you knew about TCM. Yeah, very much so. I think that its emphasis really on people's emotions, I think, is is what I've really loved about the five element style um although it's many much of its focuses on people having a constitutional imbalance this real focus i think very often lies upon understanding people's internal worlds much more um and i think that that's what really interests me the most of all i think what i'm most interested in is people's emotional worlds and how that affects either their psychological or their physical health mm -hmm. i think the five element model I think, is a very interesting model in terms of under understanding that Mm -hmm. How long were you in China? Oh, about a month or so, I mean. Okay. And like you said, it, it kind of left uh, not the taste that you were expecting. No, I think maybe if I'd gone back another time um, and, and, and done some work there and studied with a good doctor, I think it would have been a different matter. But around that time, I started to have a new family. I started. I had three children in quite quick succession. And so trips off to China when you when you got a young yeah. family... Uh, didn't you know that I there was something went on the back burner for a bit there really right well then I learned my TCM in England as opposed to learn my TCM in China yeah yeah I spent about three months in Beijing and I had a similar it sounds like a similar experience in that I had come from Sri Lanka working with my mentor there Dr. Jai Saria and we had a very busy clinic and I was given basically autonomy to treat the way that I, he had taught um, but I was able to do do my own thing under that and I got to China and I found it was very prescriptive, uh, very lacking in any sort of theory or description. And ultimately, I, I became a person who was just told to put a needle here and put a needle there. And that, I know that's not the experience for everyone, no. but, but that was the experience that I had in the hospital where I was working. There were some incredible moments as well and incredible things such as watching a cesarean section with acupuncture anesthesia that I would not have been able to do elsewhere. But I, I did leave China feeling a, a bit disappointed in my experience. Of course, I was young and naive and arrogant at the time. And now I'm older and less naive and hopefully less arrogant. But I, I recognize that... Um, <laughs> we hope, we hope. We hope. <laughs> I recognize that I was probably a bit more closed off to some of the opportunities than what I perhaps would be today. But it w it's a very different environment there. I, I'll say that for sure, trying to... I think it's essential to find an incredible teacher and a number of my guests have studied under Dr. Wang Ju Yi and yeah. the experience that they have had mentoring with him sounds phenomenal. No, it's very obvious that to, to go there now would be a very different experience. Back in, back when I was going there in the 80, in 82, it was still very kind of communistic. They're all wearing still blue jackets all the time and things. And it was very prescriptive and uh, uh, there was very little kind of personal freedom really. Uh, and largely, we were seeing doctors who just wanted to tell us about their research of having done pericardium six on 400 patients and what had happened, as it were. You know, so in the end, we started to say, that can't we see some veterans? Uh, and we got more, more. The most interesting stuff that we saw really was talking to veterans who are not quite so orthodox in some ways and still were, were trained in different styles. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the things I will say that I was most impressed by is the integration there. The fact that the acupuncture ward is in the hospital and the her- herbal ward is incredible and they make all their formulations there. It's like, it's really an impressive sight to see. And the, Very much so. Very the, tw- much so. the tween award and there's not like a hierarchy that we see in other parts of the world. It's from my experience and observation anyway, someone would come in needing medical treatment and they would be basically sent to whatever ward or department seemed to best be able to deal with that. And that may be acupuncture or herbs. Yeah. Yeah. No, in that sense, it was, it was great to be, in, especially back in those days when acupuncture seemed so, I think what you Americans call left field. Um, I never, quite, I never quite understood what left field is. I used to baseball references or something. Maybe it's better, whatever. Um, but it was it was lovely to be in a country where Chinese medicine was just accepted, part of part of the wallpaper, it's part of what was normal and part of what was natural. That was really yeah, uh, that was really an eye-opener. That really really was. But unfortunately, it was unfortunate because the, the plane we were supposed to take to Beijing broke down. So we missed going to what I thought was probably gonna be the best hospital we were gonna see in Beijing. We were mainly in provincial hospitals. Uh, so I always hoped that maybe what I was going to see in Beijing would be better than what I saw elsewhere. But uh, no, I must admit, I did come away from China not madly impressed, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's, well, there are certainly countless experiences that someone could have there. And I think my biggest takeaway is it's what you make of it. And and I didn't make the best of it. I know that. I I had expectations and I felt let down, but... Like I said, I was young and naive, and so I know that I would have a different experience now, even in the same exact circumstances. Right. Also, as you say, I think finding finding the right mentor, finding the right doctor, I think is also is actually key, isn't it? Yep. Yep. And that's that's hard work sometimes. And hearing Jason Robertson talk about finding his mentor, Doctor Wang Juyi, and basically dedicating himself to to mentoring under him and, and convincing him to take him on as a mentee. It's, it's something yeah. that it really is hard work. And if you're, if you're waiting for the handout for someone to say, here's your mentor, it might not happen. It might not happen. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about it from, I guess, college uh, director to college director. I'm really curious about what your journey has been like. So your Dean, have you been Dean since the beginning? I've been dean since the beginning, yes. Okay. And that was in 92, is that what you said? 92, that's right. So I think I'm going to ease my way out fairly soon, though. 30 years. And that is incredibly impressive. And well, you... in the early days, I used to say, look, if I'm still doing this job in 20 years' time, we've got trouble. And that was over <laughs> 20 years ago. But we're, we're doing well, actually. But I'm, I'm looking to find my way to ease my way out. Well, and I, I'm really impressed because before we hit record, you were saying that you still do a lot of the admissions interviews. And so you're, you're really involved in that. And, and for 30 years to be at that level of involvement, like I, I commend you. This is actually my first interview post-retirement. As I told you before we hit record last week, I retired as president of Pacific Rim College and 15, 16 years felt long enough. So 30 years is way to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I don't enjoy all those committees sometimes and some of those meetings yeah. sometimes. But uh, for example, interviewing applicants, I really like interviewing applicants. I really, it's good to get a, get a sense of them, I think. You know, yeah. I, like, I like that part of the work. That's great. What do you think keeps you going? What do you think has kept the spark alive for you? 
Well, I am struck. So I've just come back from holiday and I had a lovely time on holiday. The sun shone all day, every day in Cornwall. And I came back and had to start work again. And the night before, I was thinking, oh, I've got to get up early tomorrow and shave and go to work. But actually, I feel fine about that. And I think it's because I think you've just got to really find human beings intrinsically very to be very curious about human beings basically i think that's i think that's what it comes down to and so every patient that comes in they've got their own individual story haven't they and their own individual internal world that you have to try and get some sense of as well as the physical symptoms that they have and i think i'm just insatiably curious about human beings i think that's the i think that's the long and short of it really mm-hmm. it's funny i was talking to someone earlier on who said they preferred a couple of days ago said they preferred dogs to people I can't, I can't i can't get my head around that idea personally you know i find people endlessly fascinating and i sometimes think that nothing that anybody would say to me would surprise me anymore i think i've heard it all and yet actually on a daily basis i'm constantly surprised by what people say to me you know it's, it's the way it is you know as long as i as long as i'm constantly surprised then i'm, I'm happy to keep doing the work really oh, that's great tell me a bit about your clinical practice because you are still in clinical practice too right yes two days a week i see patients yeah okay and is that an integrated approach that you're taking in your practice? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I think it depends. You know, I've had a funny little, you know how patients come in runs sometimes. You get little runs of particular complaints. Yeah. I've had a run recently of people with arthritic fingers and thumbs, uh, which is not particularly cool. exciting acupuncture work, I have to say, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that's, that's the way it is, you know. But sometimes in the course of a day, and in the course of a busy day, I'll see 17 patients. And so they have a couple where it's all fairly straightforward, as it were, and you, and you, you know, you do some, do some needles in their hands. Um, you can, that's, a, that's a bit easier. You can we go into a slightly more automatic pilot, you know, because who, who comes in the next patient may well be sobbing and in great distress. That's a question of being able to respond and, um, you know, relate to them at the level that's appropriate for them, really, isn't it? So yeah. in the course of the day, you know, you just see all sorts, don't you, really, and all sorts of different problems and all sorts of different people. And I find them endlessly fascinating. Well, I would say the arthritic fingers and thumbs are probably a sign of the times now that pretty much everyone has turned digital and, and especially with the lockdowns around the world, all the tapping on the phones and computers and mouses. I'm not surprised, actually. I all. think people have been suffering from arthritic fingers and thumbs since time immemorial. Oh, basically. yeah? All right. My mother destroyed her thumbs doing upholstery. Apparently, you have to stretch the fabric a lot, you know. Uh, I think whatever work people have been doing, they've been destroying their fingers and thumbs since. Well, maybe people are going back to upholstery and and mass right now during the lockdown. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so you continue to. It sounds like you continue to learn every day through. Very much so. Very much so. Practice. I think. I think, for example, one of one of the. I don't mean to criticize Worsley too much because he was a, a fantastic influence on my life. But I think one of the mistakes he made was he stopped seeing patients himself. Uh, Peter, and I think talked seeing about patients that as well. himself. That keeps you humble, really, because you're not going to you're not going to get all your patients better. You know, sometimes you're not going to understand what's what's happening here in the diagnosis. Um, and I think that it's it's a really humbling experience. I think being a physician, because you're not going to win all your patients. And I think it keeps you humble and keeps you learning. And I think, you know, for example, part of the work that I do at the college, I'm a clinical supervisor. So a lot of what I'm doing is making a diagnosis and then leaving. You know, then then other then students are doing the treatments. Um, and as long as you're just making diagnosis all the time, it's very easy to convince yourself that you're, you know, you're making correct diagnosis all the time because you don't really have to sometimes have to live and see your failures, really. I think that seeing patients, seeing your own patients, um, I think is what keeps you humble, really, and, and, and keeps you learning because you have to scratch your head and work out why it's not working for a particular patient. Mm-hmm. 
And what now would you say are you most passionate about? In terms of styles of acupuncture or, or just in, more, more broad than that? As broad as, as broad as you want to go. I think I'm most passionate about making a really intimate connection with my patients, really. Um, I used to say, I don't think I say this anymore, I used to say that I felt unless a patient had really, well, I used to actually, was if a patient hadn't cried with me, I didn't feel they'd really revealed themselves to me, revealed their kind of, their, possibly their weaknesses and their distress to me. I don't think I take the same view so much these days, but I think I just want to make contact with their being, really. And I think what I find least satisfying is when I can't make that contact with a patient. They just come in, they want to talk to me about their, their physical symptoms, their problem, and they won't really kind of relate to me from their, from their core. That's what I find unsatisfying. Um, and I find that as long as I can re, you know, reach that patient and re, touch their core and possibly touch, touch into the parts of them that do get distressed, that do get hurt, that do get angry and resentful and do get frightened, um, then I feel I've really made contact with the patient. I find that that's my, that's my passion, really. That's my passion, making contact with people. All right, I want to drill down a bit more deeply into that, if that's okay. What, what is it about the connection that is so fulfilling and exciting for you? It may seem, that I know this may seem a rather dumb answer, really, but having an intimate connection with another human being, that, that seems to be self-evident that that's inherently satisfying. You know, Theodore Reich, Theodore Reich thought that uh, when Theodore Reich was asked, you know, what, what's, how do you avoid neurosis? His reply was work and love, he says, work and love, all else is neurosis, he says. And that may be a bit simplistic. Well, it is rather simplistic. But I think having a really intimate contact with, 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 with a patient, and it may not be love in the classic sense, but it's, I think it's intimacy, really. And I think that when I was studying acupuncture, my, my big worry was, oh, I thought, I think I'll get on well with people who have similar values to myself, maybe similar generation, you know, uh, as myself. But what am I going to do if the patient's extremely right wing? Because I'm, I'm rather left wing in terms, of my, in terms of my politics, you know. And it was funny because on a, about my third ever patient I saw uh, turned out to be extremely right wing, extremely racist, uh, was a supporter of a kind of almost a neo-Nazi party, really, in England at that time. Well, neo-Nazis going a bit far, but very right wing anyway. Um, and uh, actually, she was a sweetheart. She just had political views that I couldn't get on with, you know. So I just we didn't talk about politics. And I, I connected with uh, more tender and softer sides of herself, really. Uh, and that was a real learning for me, really, because that was always really my worry. Uh, and I think that I've often, I think when I was young, I think, you know, I used to think that, um, you know, I had hair down to my shoulders and all that kind of stuff. You know, I used, I used to think that, you know, I didn't really get on with people who had similar values to me in that kind of way. And I think it's been a real learning for me to uh, find myself feeling really close and really empathetic towards people for whom I wouldn't naturally have that great a connection with, as it were. They would never be my friends, um, but all sorts of unlikely people I've ended up being very fond of, you know, in a way that I would never have been, never have made that contact with them in any, any other situation, really. Yeah, there's so much power in that, so much beauty. And I, I've had very similar experiences and a lot of them very recently that I've found that I, and actually I just did an interview the other day with someone and we were polarized ends of, of the spectrum on our viewpoints and a number of topics. 
And yet we were still able to have an incredible, respectful, heart-centered conversation. And at the end of it, we, we go on being friends and we just recognize that, yeah, we disagree on some things. But at the core, we're all still humans and we're just trying to do our best. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to find peace within that. And, and not hold a place of judgment and think, oh, this, this person is out there and therefore there's nothing good about them. And, and I see that and I, I'm worried because I do see a lot of that today in our society. Have you, what sort of, I guess, paradigm shifts have you seen over your career when it comes to that interhuman connection? Have you found that there are times where it's easier or harder or at points in your life you've been in a places where it's become easier or harder any trends a couple of things come to mind there really sometimes when people say what you know what helped you develop most as a practitioner and i think what they're probably asking me is there's some particular course i've done or some particular style or some particular technique actually for me i think uh being a parent made, made the biggest made the biggest change for me really that selflessness that's required uh of being a parent um and um just kind of being there for somebody in that kind of way. And, and, and uh, you know, I've had five children altogether, you know, and it's such a heart contact you have with them that I think that it kind of, it, being a parent really opened my heart in a way that made it possible for me to be more open-hearted and make more contact with all, all sorts of people, I think. I think being a parent made a colossal difference to me in that, in, in that way, I think, really. Mm-hmm. I feel that. And over the last year and a half, with the widespread fear and controversy and uh, divisiveness, has that impacted what you're seeing in the clinic and even at the college? Uh, but have, have you seen any sort of changes in people? Is it harder for you now to develop that connection or are people just craving it more now than ever because it's, it's been limited by society? I think if anything, the latter. I, you know, I don't think it's been a huge change. But if anything, the latter, I think that a lot of people have struggled in terms of their psychological health uh, through, the, through, through the through quite fierce lockdowns we had, we had in this country, really. And I think that so I think one of the great advantages of being an acupuncturist really is it does enable a level of intimacy that you just don't get very easily in day to day life, chatting at the school gates or going to the pub or, you know, going to the yoga class or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and I think the acupuncturist almost has a license to ask any question they want of the patient, really, because in terms of um, exploring their, um, you know, especially I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in psychosomatic medicine. I was very influenced by a book a few years ago called It's All in Your Head by Suzanne O'Sullivan, which I strongly recommend, mm. because I thought that I'd thought a lot about psychosomatic medicine, but she is a consultant neurologist, um, and she really opened my eyes to just the enormous range of psychosomatic symptomatology that can happen when people somatize their distress. So, um, you know, I think that an acupuncturist has the, has the license really to inquire about people's uh, diet, about their emotional world, the stress and distress that, that, that they suffer from. Um, and I think that, um, I think that, for example, therapists, I think, are much more, you know, psychotherapists are often much more bound by sets of rules about what's what's okay to say and what's not okay okay to say. I think acupuncturists, generally speaking, don't have those kind of limitations. And I think it's certainly afforded me the opportunity to create extraordinarily intimate contact with, 
with 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 patience. Um, and I think that I think as the years have gone by, I have realized more and more that really it's people's internal world that very often makes the huge change for them in terms of their symptoms. I was particularly struck, I think, recently, I've had a, I also had a number of people, as one does, have a lot of patients with digestive symptomatology. Um, and I think very often when they first come, they expect that what, they, what they've often thought about is that the real trouble is what I eat. They have looked at it and they've taken stuff out of their diet and tried different things, but they can't find what it is that seems to cause the problem. And I'm not saying that what the person eats doesn't uh, often, it can often cause problems for people. Obviously, people are gluten intolerant or lactose intolerant or whatever it may be, all sorts of things. But I think very often their digestive symptoms are not based upon what they eat. They're based upon, um, you know, for example, irritable bowel syndrome is generally regarded as a, as a, as a, as a psychosomatic symptom. Um, as, as is much indigestion, really. And I think very often it's people's internal world and their, the level of stress that they suffer from uh, is what creates the problems, I think. Oh, this feels juicy to me. I, I like this. And you said something, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, that it's the internal changes that have the bigger, biggest impact rather than the I external. think so, very often, yeah. yes, very often. And, and I, I think and that the classics of Chinese medicine are, are very clear, really, that, it's very, that the, the top priority is very often is to bring about a change in the person's spirit. And that's what you need to do in order to bring about and change the physical health. I'm not saying that's universally true. There's obviously lots of people for whom diet is the big issue and all sorts of people have, uh, you know, pain in, their, pain in their fingers because they've, as you say, been using their phones too much right. or whatever it may be. It's all sorts of other reasons as well. But I think that my real excitement and my real interest lies in the relationship between people's stress and distress and the symptoms that it's caused. Now, you said just a moment ago, the spirit, changing the spirit. And can you kind of define for me what that means to you as a practitioner and just in your, your philosophy? When you say spirit, what are you referring to? Well, Claude La, you know Claude La, you know, he, yes. he, he talked about it. He said that the spirit is what makes us individual, what makes us unique and different from anybody else. And when I, when I, when I, for me, the word spirit, obviously the word spirit means different things to different people. But for me, it's, it's what makes the human being a human, you know, an individual, really, and gives that person the sense that you know, there'll never be another individual exactly the same as you again in this world, or the same as me again in this world. We're truly unique individuals. So when I say spirit, I really mean that, really. I really mean the, the uniqueness of the, of the human being. Okay, so you're not going into five element spirits with the sh the shen and the hun and the po and the e you're, you're talking no, I'm not particularly using in that kind of way i think they all i think the in one sense one could say that the five of them constitute yeah. constitute the being as it were i think that, yeah. that would be that would be true to say but also i think that you know i'm very interested i think the five element practitioners are inclined to think of you know for example uh i don't know someone's uh, in someone's metal the way in which um a sense of loss and grief affects that person's being and, and, and affects their level of happiness and contentment in the world, really, uh, may well bring about physical symptoms. I saw a patient yesterday, I can't quite think who it was now, you know, who talked about having bronchitis for six months after the death of her mother. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the classic way in which grief, uh, you know, depletes lung chi, as, as Machocha says. So I think, well, I think one of the things that's striking is that, you know, for example, Machocha's book, The Foundation of Chinese Medicine, I think it's a fantastic book in many ways. In his section on the emotions, he talks, he says that grief depletes lunchy. 
But when you look at the section on lung qi deficiency in the book, he doesn't mention grief mm. uh, as as being uh, as being one of the causes. Because I think at that stage he feels more obliged to stay closer to a more contemporary TCM view of etiology. Right. Um, and I think that uh, it's very striking. You look at the Chinese books, how much more uh, spaces, column inches, they devote to say the external causes compared to the internal causes. And I think that's a great shame. Yeah. I think one of Chinese medicine. I think the Chinese medicine's greatest strength for us in the West really is its understanding of how the different emotions affect different functions. Mm-hmm. So psychosomatic medicine, psycho mind, soma, the body. So basically how the mind, how the emotions impact the body and cause various symptomatology that we experience. Uh, one of my good friends is Laurie Eve Deschar, who wrote Five Spirits, which is an incredible book on acupuncture. And we've had a number of conversations on this and on inner alchemy because she's a, a teacher. Her and her husband yeah. are teachers of inner alchemy. And it is the results that she gets in the clinic is are profound because for the most part, regardless of the external manifestation, she is using the kind of philosophies of inner alchemy to get people to have internal changes. And she uses the spirit names of the points largely to do that, which she talks about a lot in her wonderful book, Five Spirits, and just how not just needling a particular point, but then telling the patient the spirit of the point, the name of the point, and the reactions that some of the patients have to that information and sitting with that while being needled with that have resulted in quite profound healing experiences for her and her patients. So it's it's an incredible field. Oh, I shouldn't call it a field. It's, I think it's the beauty of Chinese medicine is that potential to do that, to help people transform their inner terrain. Because I, I agree wholeheartedly that probably most of the manifestations of ill health come from that inner terrain. So I guess my I, I guess for you, my question is, how do you go about catalyzing that inner change in people? How do I how do I catalyze and bring it about? Yes, I think that you know I, I know Laurie Decker's book well, and I think she's she's very focused on the names of the points, isn't she? And certainly that aspect is for all five hundred practitioners is, is is a big issue. I think one of the differences between British and what you might loosely call American five element acupuncture is the, is the American five, five element acupuncture is going to be a bit more kind of poetic and a bit more what we might loosely call new agey than the, than the British style, I think, really. Um, my, my sense is that, um, you know, treating, you know, for example, in, in the case of somebody who um, is, you know, their symptoms would come on, for example, after a bereavement, then your focus might be upon treating the organs of the, of the metal element, although it's not always the metal element that always te- takes the biggest hit in that in that situation. And I think it's really the it's the quality of the rapport between practitioner and patient and the intention of the practitioner in the moment of needling, which I think is what really potentiates acupuncture most of all. I think acupuncture is a subtle form of medicine. I think it's not a question of just you know applying it mechanistically. I think you have to potentiate it. And I think that. I think once once a patient feels really met by the practitioner and feels they, they trust the practitioner as they would hopefully trust their, their doctor as well, but they really trust the practitioner and feel a real connection with the practitioner, 
I think that that can really potentiate the treatment and make the treatment much more effective. One of the things that's really interested me over the years has been, you know, I've, I've, I've trained literally many hundreds of, of practitioners. I'm often struck by why do some practitioners build big, you know, large successful practices and other, other practitioners don't? Because as students, very often technically speaking, um, you know, student A was not particularly any stronger than student B. Uh, but I think that very often, I think it does lie somewhat in the personality of the practitioner and their ability to create rapport. I think that's really a, a key issue, really. And I think very often there's many students who have been good technically, but they don't really quite have that aptitude for creating the rapport. And I think that holds them back in terms of their efficacy of their treatments. Right. Now, this is something Dr. Ackman and I talked about a fair bit as he was sharing that Worsley was a master at creating rapport. And he, and I questioned him on this, but he said he had never once seen him unable to create that rapport and connect with a patient, never once. And I found that to be just fascinating that he had that ability to do that. In your own experience and practice, and maybe you have a different observation too. I do have a, the idea. Do you? <laughs> I worked with him for many years, much longer than with Peter. No, I mean, it's true. I think he did have an extraordinary ability to create rapport and an extraordinary ability to evoke emotions in people, really. Very often talking about fairly mundane matters, really. But he did have an extraordinary ability to kind of touch people's soul, as it were. But I can, I, I've, seen, I've seen it go wrong sometimes too, though, I have to say. My experience is a bit different from Peter. <laughs> well, feel free to share if you want to, but I won't. I won't pry into that. What is your magic when it comes to creating rapport and connection? You've said connection is the thing that you are most passionate about with your patients. So what have you found really works best for you to do that? Oof. I think you have to play to your strengths, I think, to a certain extent. And I think being a male practitioner, it's very different from being a female practitioner, I think. And particularly, I think, being a male practitioner treating male patients. I think that they're inclined to be much more reserved. Uh, they'd be much more inclined to open up, I think, very often for, with a woman and talk to them about their uh, what, 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 what distresses them much more than they would be to another man. So I think um, as a male practitioner and being not as young as I once was, I think that, um, I think that, uh, how can I put it? Uh, I think that, I suppose in a sense, I do have a slightly kind of paternalistic, a slightly, a slightly kind of fatherly um, vibe that I can create reason, reasonably easily you know I've been practicing a long time and I think people therefore unconsciously kind of sense that I kind of know what I'm doing that I'm not a I'm not a tyro I've been doing it a long time and I'm experienced at what I'm doing and that um I have a lot of experience of life I think one of the, one of the problems sometimes I think for young practitioners very often is that some of the older patients it's like well I don't know I don't know how it is in Canada but in, in England people often say things like policemen all look young these days and doctors all look young these days and I think they sometimes think that acupuncturists look young and I think they think sometimes when people are, are older uh, they find it hard to believe that this young practitioner who they may like very much has quite the life experience to really understand what it's been through for them after their husband has now died or and their family's broken up and when their children has now broken up their marriage or whatever it may be and their grandchildren are, are struggling in some way um, so I think that having a, a sense that the, the practitioner's seen it all, as it were, and experience, you know, not obviously they haven't seen it all, but they've seen a lot. And I think that that creates an atmosphere of trust um, and, a, and, a, and a feeling that they're in safe hands, 
I think is is part of what I can create fairly easily in a way that I know it's, it's, it's fascinating being a clinical supervisor at the college. You know, I see some of these students and they've got much more ability than I have to create a joyful, warm atmosphere, perhaps, than, than I can, perhaps. Uh, but I think one has to play to one's strengths, really. And I think that um, I think that that sense of me being kind of very experienced, I think, is, is part of a strength for me. Mm -hmm. So you brought up that archetype, archetype of the inner judge where potentially an older patient is judging a younger practitioner thinking you just don't have enough life experience. What is your, now that <clears throat> you are on the, uh, the more experienced side of things, you probably don't run into that very often, but in your formative years or for younger practitioners who are out there in your experience, what is a, an effective means of dealing with that? and building that trust in someone who has put up that judgment that, yeah, you know, you're just a kid. I don't have a simple answer to the question, but obviously I think, I think if the patient discerns any level of critical judgment, any level of um, intolerance or impatience, I think that the, you can lose rapport very, very rapidly that way. I think can't you really, I think the, a notion that I think the the kind of acceptance, uh, the acceptance of the patient's weaknesses and distress and their inappropriate anxieties. I think if they if they if the practitioner picks if the patient picks up that you're thinking oh no why are you you know worrying about that you don't have to worry about that or whatever it may be. I think that that can very easily you can very easily lose rapport um, mm -hmm. in that situation. So I think I think acceptance and the kind of being non -jud non judgmental I think is absolutely crucial. Right. Now you used the term earlier, paternalistic approach that you kind of take now. What about in the earlier days when you were younger and in, in many cases younger than your patients? Um, I think, I think, it, I think it was the, it, the notion that um, they felt that I was passionately determined to get them well and to, and to try and really connect with them. Mm -hmm. I think that that's what people kind of perceived in me really that I was I was in the, in the initial consultation particularly that I would strive to really create that rapport creating the rapport I think was was always been my top goal I think almost making diagnosis comes after that really because if you haven't got the rapport with the patient then you very often lose them even if your diagnosis is correct um, very often you'll lose the patient quite quickly anyway because they, they they just don't feel that connection with you I think particularly in the early days when acupuncture was pretty weird, it seemed pretty weird to them. Whereas these days it feels much more accepted. Um, I think they had to feel that you really passionately cared for them because that's not always what they felt, of course, from their conventional medical practitioner. And I think that was a powerful, uh, powerful tool. Yeah. Lonnie Jarrett speaks about how the rapport building and, and the diagnosis in some cases begins from the very first interaction, even if that's just a voicemail that a patient has left for you to inquire about an appointment, that that's, that's really when the rapport building begins and everything from that point on is, is part of the, the really an extended part of the treatment sessions. I think that's true. I think that's true. But certainly if I get to the end of the initial consultation and don't feel that I've won their trust, um, sometimes they you know they keep coming and you and you win that you can only win their trust over a period of time. I think that's somewhat true, but certainly I'm never really happy unless I feel that I've really made that connection with the patient by the end of the first consultation and that they've felt heard 
and felt a connection with me and felt that they're in safe hands. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds to me like that could be a potentially lengthy process. Are your initial consultations quite lengthy and are some of them just talking? Yes, very much. I, I, don't, I don't always treat on the first session. Actually, I usually treat on the first session, but not always. I allow an hour for the first session, personally. Uh, to take a good case history, I think, takes... It, it depends. Sometimes you can take a case history very quickly, and sometimes after an hour, you have you only scratch the surface. I think those, both yeah. those two are possible. But I allow an hour anyway. And certainly during that time, certainly would spend some of that time uh, talking to them about their inner world, what they found difficult in their life, what have been difficult phases in their life, uh, what causes them anxiety, what causes them irritation, what causes them sadness. Uh, those kind of issues would certainly be core for me. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's comforting to hear that, that the people who are coming to you are getting that undivided focus and attention for up to an hour, because that's pretty rare, I find in this world. And you and I've been talking now for almost an hour. And you can learn a lot about a person and build a lot of connection in that amount of time. And for you to basically take that first hour just to focus on building the rapport, I think is really crucial to building the foundation for the treatments that are going to come in the future. Yeah. And I, I've always told people who are considering acupuncture when they ask me, who should I go see? Like First and foremost, you've got to feel good about the person who you're sitting in front of when you do find someone. Because if you're, in, if you're in that treatment room and you don't feel comfortable with the person, it's probably going to be a, a less beneficial healing journey than if you're in a place where you actually have good rapport and feel comfort with a person. And in general, if people go to, go to acupuncture once and they don't feel that connection, so they don't really stay with the practitioner, they very often don't go to see somebody else. They no. think, well, I've tried acupuncture. Yeah. I've done it once, as it were. And I think that's such a shame, really. Such a shame to, to lose somebody in that kind of way. And so they lose that potential that Chinese medicine could help them with. Yeah, I agree entirely. Now, earlier you said kind of the two big things, rapport, which of course we're talking about now, and also intention. And that one really strikes me a lot too. One of my former teachers and former podcast guests, Dr. Michael Greenwood, who's written a number of books on Chinese medicine, including Braving the Void. He used yeah. to teach us in the classroom intention. And, and I talked to him about this in an interview and my memory of it is he would tell us that the location of the point and even an understanding of the function of the point is far less important than your intention behind why you are using a point and your intention behind your treatment and your interaction with the patient. And that's always stayed with me because it's, it's something where I, I think and practitioners can get very busy, not just in their practice, but in life. And it's easy to have a patient, I, I found at times it was easy to have a patient come in who I didn't build necessarily that connection with and just go through the motions. Oh, this is a Achilles tendonitis. Sure, I can do this, pop in a few needles, let them bake for 30 minutes and come back. And I think there's a lot to be, there's a lot of potential loss there and not really developing that intention. What's your experience with that? Well, it's funny. You know, I, I mentioned I had the, I've had this whole run of patients with arthritic fingers recently. So I took on a patient. She and normally speaks. So I normally have a double. I, I see patients every half hour in general. So normally take on a new patient. I need a double session. But she said she's a she's a, a, a classy pianist, and so she pleaded to see me. 
I said, well, it was just your fingers. Okay, I can fit. I, I don't need the whole hour. I don't need to take a whole case history. It was just giving your fingers. Okay, that's fine. So she came to see me and I treated her, I treated her fingers a couple of times. Her fingers are miles better. And then on the third session, she goes and says to me, this is amazing what you've done for my fingers because, you know, it's, it's been a big difference for her as a, as a pianist. Um, she then started talking to me about how she's, she lies awake all night catastrophizing. And uh, even in, in the daytime, she catastrophizes. In the nighttime, she catastrophizes way out of control, you know. Um, and I found in that way in which um, I was so glad that she felt that the acupuncture was effective for her and she could open up to me in that kind of way, whereas she originally had told me, no, it's just my fingers, nothing else is an issue at all. I discovered that she, she's a very distressed being, you know, and uh, she says she can lie awake for hours and, and having this awful catastrophes, you know. And so, and, and could I possibly treat that? Which I said, yeah, absolutely. That's what I'd love to try and treat that. Love, love to treat that for sure, you know. Well, it's great how it can act as that portal, that doorway to that trust. Being able exactly. to treat, treat someone's physical symptoms can then lead into that deeper inner work. And I also find it interesting that you kind of uh, deliberated on whether or not you could get her in and then you went, oh, it's just her fingers, right? When, of course, that's kind of anathema to the entire philosophy of Chinese medicine. We're never just treating an appendage no, or just no. treating an injury or just treating an ache. And I think that's a potential pitfall for practitioners. And I know I've fallen in that and especially with an interest in musculoskeletal problems to do that, to just be like, it's just a hamstring pull. But there is, I think there's great magic, potential magic that is lost in that kind of limited viewpoint. And I, I recognize too, at the same time, that sometimes you just need to treat the fingers to get the patient's trust and have them open up. I'd say it was very unusual for me to take something on on that basis. I'd say that was very, very unusual. But she was, I think for many years, I always had a receptionist. And in recent years, I've now started working from a building in the garden of my home. So I pick up the phone myself. It's much easier to get a receptionist to, to to turn somebody away. When they start pleading with you on the phone, then I start to soften. You know, I thought I softened in this case, unfortunately, the way I wouldn't <laughs> normally do. You know. Well, it seems like it was for the better because you ended up yeah. making that yeah. deep connection and really helping someone. You said that you are considering after 30 years winding down as dean. What what will that look like for you? Well, I still keep on seeing patients. I still keep teaching. I just wind down, wind down being dean. Really, you know, I think would be the issue. Uh, I do think thirty years is a long time to be, or almost thirty years, a long time to be doing it. I just ought to be stepping down, really. Um, and I also, maybe the college also needs needs to be changing and moving. It's just time for a new era, I think, really. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I I spend Mondays looking after my after my grandchildren these days. You know, there are other things I can do in my life apart from Beautiful. Chinese medicine, but. It also does seem to be in terms of seeing patients having acquired a certain level of competence that to um, just fritter away my years when I could be helping people. That would also seem a bit uh, seem a bit silly to be doing that, really. You know, I could be helping people and enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. So there's not uh, sort of spending more time with the family, which is incredibly important. Are there any other passion projects that you've been putting on hold that you're hoping to have more time to do? Um, I've just I just bought a house in Cornwall, uh, so that, that's that, I definitely got some passion for being down in Cornwall. My brother lives down down there. Nice. Cornwall, I don't know whether you know, Cornwall's a very pretty part of England with with gorgeous, gorgeous beaches and gorgeous yeah. cliffs. And, uh, 
Uh, so I definitely got some passion for that. But also I'm married to Rebecca Avon. Do you know Rebecca Avon, who's written a textbook on uh, pediatric acupuncture? No. Uh, and just written a book on um, teenage anxiety and depression, Chinese medicine's approach to teenage anxiety and depression. You, you uh, just so wrote she's that? Got, she's got new projects going on. She's just setting up a new hub for pediatric acupuncturists, uh, just setting up a new uh, low-cost clinic in, in Oxford. I, I live in Oxford in, in England um, and doing that. And so... Um, uh, she's a fair bit younger than me, and so I'm very happy also to be helping her uh, create her, uh, do her help with her work as well. So reading, just to, reading, reading through her books and editing the books and those, those kind of things. So I just love, to clarif that. clarify, Rebecca wrote the book on teenage anxiety. Is that what you said? Yeah, teenage, Rebecca wrote the book on teenage anxiety and depression. Yes. Okay. Well, I would love to connect with her if that's that's something. Sounds like I'm that sure could she'd be love a, to. A I'm sure she'd love to talk to you. That would be wonderful. Thank you. And speaking, I think stress strikes it's See, up till now, the main book on pediatric acupuncture really in English has been Julian Scott's book. Yes. Julian Scott's, you know, his approach has been very much to do with treating um, acute illnesses very often, you know, measles and mumps. And, you know, and very, in that sense, has been very influenced, I think, by what he learned from the Chinese, who are also mainly interested in treating those kind of issues. But Rebecca studied with him. And then uh, in her own practice, what she's seeing is... Um, you know, particularly in this country at the moment, you know, a, a, a absolutely epidemic of anxiety and depression. Absolutely. At the moment, you know, um, as well as obviously obscure bedwetting and tummy aches and all sorts of things that certainly have psychological roots. Mm -hmm. And so I think that her book particularly stresses um, how you can uh, uh, you know, work with children more in that kind of way, as opposed to treating physical illnesses, you know, measles and mumps, those kind of infections yes. and those kind of things, which I think Julian Scott's book has been terrific about that but i think that her textbook on it really is, is really good at looking at the more emotional aspects which i think are key also in the treatment of children wow i that's fascinating i would love to learn more from her and is that book out now her textbook is out her the the book the book for on anxiety and depression is partly for parents and partly for practitioners she also wants parents to try and get get some sense uh, of how chinese medicine looks at um different ways in which anxiety and depression manifests in their children. Wow. So important. Such good work. Speaking of books, can you, we're probably winding down here, but can you tell me a bit about five element constitutional acupuncture and that wonderful book that you wrote with Angie and John Hicks? My main interest in that book, I think, I think I've always been rather sensitive to the accusation that five element acupuncture was kind of invented by Worsley really. Um, and what I, my, one of my main goals in, writing, in, in the chunks of the book that I wrote, really, was to show that at least sometimes the actual practicalities, but at least very often the values are deeply enshrined in Chinese medicine. You know, for example, the emphasis upon treating the person as opposed to just treating the physical symptoms, you know. So I was mainly, I spent a lot of time um, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford and other places Looking, you know, looking at Chinese medicine texts and Chinese uh, philo philosophical texts to try and show that the, 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 the key values that he really, that five element acupuncture really stresses are deeply embedded in Chinese medicine. That was really my main priority in many ways, as well as obviously just teaching the techniques as well. Mm -hmm. And that, what was that experience like for you guys to write that incredible textbook? Um, it was surprisingly easy, actually. John, John and Angie and I go back a long way together. We could work very easily together in that kind of way. I thought, what's it going to be like? I mean, three of us writing a book together. But actually, it worked out, it worked out really well. We all wrote different chunks and then edited different chunks. And uh, it was very satisfying, really. I always thought, 
that it was going to be too difficult to write a book on 500 acupuncture. But in the end, we decided we'd do it. And uh, I'm really, I'm really glad that we did. Really glad that we did. Oh, I am too. It, as I said, it's been one of our core five element teaching books for a very long time at the college. And I found it to be a really fantastic. Also, it's been, yes, and also through the book, it's been enjoyable, you know, lecturing uh, throughout Europe and Israel and coming to the States and stuff like that. You know, lecturing as well has also been, been very good fun. And uh, I think there's ways in which there's a certain amount you can put in the book, really, but a certain amount that you can teach, you know, by transmission, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Books seem to be really the doorway to help open up that speaking path for a lot of people. For sure. For sure. Well, Peter, this has been so great getting to know a bit more about you. And it's nice to speak to another college director who's who's gone through, a, I guess, a bit of a similar journey over the years. And, <laughs> yes. and I really appreciate you opening up and, and just connecting with me today and sharing all of your experience and wisdom. Where can people find out more about you and potentially work with you as a patient or as a student? Well, I, I, you know, I, have, I, I have a website. Um, but um, yes, you know, in my, most of my teaching is really focused on, on being in the college, but also I, I go to conferences sometimes and teach, of course, the COVID's made all that rather difficult in recent times. Um, but also um, through the, uh, what's it called now, the traditional, damn, I forgot what it's called now, uh, an Israeli company, I'm just doing a, we're doing a course on five element acupuncture for TCM practitioners. Um, so that's going to be, that's going to come online, I think, probably early, early next year. So I've been teaching some of that along with some other five element teachers. Great. Um, I've always thought that TCM, a lot of TCM practitioners could gain a lot from certain, you know, not, not to throw TCM out, you know, out of the window, but they can learn a lot from the five element style and can incorporate that in, into their practice. And it would deepen their practice and make it more, certainly more person focused and somewhat less illness focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what are some of those websites? Uh, well, Wolvercoat Acupuncture Clinic is the main website. But if you just typed in Peter Mole Acupuncture, it, it would certainly come up, I think, really. Okay. Or the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine, which is in Reading, United Kingdom. In Reading. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. This has been wonderful. And it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate you doing this and all the work that you've done over the decades for acupuncture and Chinese medicine in general and creating a college that has been such a... a pillar of kind of influence and inspiration around the world so congratulations on that and all the work that you do and i hope you are able to carve out the time to spend in uh, cornwall and more time with your grandkids <laughs> i think it's nice to feel that in a very small way in a very tiny way that has made some contribution if you know what i mean and certainly i think that in terms of one's working life if one can alleviate some human sickness and some patients and teach and teach some practitioners and try and instill what one perceives to be good values as a practitioner. I feel that one always wishes one could achieve more. One always wishes one can see more patients and and, and teach more students. But uh, it's nice to feel one's made at least a, a, a tiny contribution. Mm -hmm. Well, you have that for sure. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Okay. Enjoy uh, your retirement. <laughs> I am. Thank you. Good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Peter Mole. If you would like to learn more about Peter, please visit his clinic website at wolvercoatacupuncturclinic.co. That's W-O-L-V-E-R-C-O-T-E acupuncture clinic.co. 
and the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine at acupuncturecollege.org.uk. If you feel drawn to study Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, consider what benefits enhancing your connection to other humans might bring to both you and them.